Uh, so I basically just go up to the Aeroflot desk as if I'm flying their airline, hand them my passport, and they're like, "What are you? Why are you here? <laughs> You're not in our system at all." <laughs> I was like, uh, "Well, I was flying this other Russian airline, and I kind of just figured you guys had like merged or something." And they're like, "No, that airline went bankrupt like two months ago." <laughs> Welcome to the Nomad Podcast where we discuss inspiring stories of lifestyle transition and how to thrive in a location-independent existence. Nomad Podcast is supported in part by Nomad Prep, an online academy to help aspiring digital nomads make a successful transition. And now here's your host, Sean Tierney. Have you been intending to write a book for ages, but constantly find that task at the bottom of your to-do list? Or maybe you've made it further and have actually begun the writing process, but now find yourself with writer's block and not sure how to move forward. Matt Rodinsky has dedicated his life to helping others extract that book from their head and get it into print with the least amount of brain damage possible. In this interview, we discuss Matt's writing process, how he deals with haters, techniques for breaking writer's block, a horrific travel snafu in Russia, how to sneak into the Super Bowl, some fawning praise for Nassim Taleb, and more. But before we get into the interview, please enjoy a quick word from our sponsor. It's important to have travel insurance as a nomad because stuff happens while we're on the road. And while we hope for the best, we need to always plan for the worst. If you're investigating insurance options, check out Safety Wing. Safety Wing is travel medical insurance specifically designed for nomads. Unlike other providers, you can buy it when you're already on the road and you don't need to continuously update them on when and where you're going next. You just have one monthly subscription that covers you wherever you go for both travel and medical. And if you shop around, you'll find it's about a third of the price of other providers. Visit nomadpodcast.com slash safety wing to get a quote today. And now here's the interview. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Tierney, and I'm here today virtually with Matt Rednitsky. Matt is founder of Word Shaman and Platypus Publishing, where he helps entrepreneurs write unput downable books that leave legacies. Matt is author of Smart Sports Betting, and you are an author, so write your effing book. Available on Amazon, both uh, with over 100 combined reviews, 80% of which are four or five stars. He's worked with Tucker Max's company, Book in a Box, uh, now Scribe Media, Sports Grid, and a number of other publications. He also recently edited and marketed Ticketless, which is a book about a guy who sneaks into the Super Bowl and Wimbledon and a bunch of other sporting events. Uh, and that book has been featured on ESPN Radio, The Daily Beast, Yahoo Sports, and a number of other major outlets. Uh, lastly, Matt is author of the world-famous Rudbits weekly e-newsletter, which I never fail to read. Uh, sometimes it sits in my inbox for a few days, but uh, I'm always savoring it when I do read it. And I am super excited to have Matt on the show today because I traveled with him for a year on one of the very first Remote Year programs. So welcome, Matt, to the show. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Um, so context for how we know each other. Yeah. Like I mentioned, we met on remote year. Uh, we traveled, traveled together for a year. You are in where, where are you at right now? I'm in Austin, Texas in the United States of America for a change. It's a rare, rare thing for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a rare thing. Cause you've been all over the map prior to this. Yeah. And I was uh, just in, uh, just in Georgia, the country. So now I have to be clear, like this is Texas, the one that you are thinking of unlike when I was in Georgia, the country and not the state. <laughs> <laughs> Dope. And we just recently saw each other like a week ago in uh, New York or northern New York at yeah. Camp Echo for the 
I'll let you describe. What was that event all about? Um, it was an adult summer camp, which was, I guess, like 50% just adults having fun, you know, partying and whatnot, and 50% summer camp and like playing dodgeball and people wanting to rip each other's throats out playing dodgeball, which got a little <laughs> feisty. <laughs> Yes, uh, those were some pretty epic games that we that we had there, and I have a, a picture of our floor when we're playing the Codenames game, uh, which yeah, is just like <laughs> <laughs> a mess and a blast at the same time. Totally. Um, all right. Well, so I want to dig in. Uh, we're going to talk a lot just about writing because you're an author and a very talented one at that. Um, but I wanted to ask you to start this off. You know, you're constantly encouraging others to write a book. Like, what is it? that you think holds most people back from doing that? Um, there's so many things. I think the the first thing is just not understanding how easy it is. So like, I like to tell people that publishing a book is quite literally as easy as posting on Instagram. Like that's not the hard part. The getting it published, putting it on Amazon is super, super easy. Obviously the difficult part is writing something that people care about, writing something that's worthwhile for you, the time it takes. Um, so that's the first step is just understanding that you can literally just log on to Amazon right now, create your author account and publish a book within probably 10 minutes, maybe even less if you know what to do. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And then once people understand how easy it is to self-publish, um, people obviously think that there's a big stigma behind self-publishing for, for good reason, because the average self-published book is garbage. Um, but it's not garbage because it's self-published. It's garbage because the person wrote garbage. Um, right. And there's no reason you can't write a book that's as good as insert whatever your favorite book is here, um, self-published. Like it has nothing to do with the self-publishing itself. It has to do with what you write about, how much effort you put into it. Do you edit it yourself? Do you hire someone? Do you crowdsource it to friends, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. And I know that you're more of a fan of the self-publishing route. What do you see as being the real problem with like the typical corporate go, you know, court a publisher and have them handle it for you? What is the issue with that approach? Um, so I, I will preface this by saying I think there is a very small percentage of people who should do it. I imagine 99% of people listening to this should not. Um, and the reasons are first, it's extremely hard to get accepted. Um, like. It's hard to get accurate statistics on this, but the one I've cited is that like 96% of authors seeking agents get rejected. So first you have to find an agent and 96% of the time it's not going to work. Once you get an agent, you have to promise, I think it's usually like 15% of your royalties to that agent. If you get accepted, you still might not get accepted. Um, you're going to have to spend probably a month or months writing a book proposal, which is like a 30 page document, which you could have been writing your book this whole time or blogging or something. Um, just to get accepted. And then once you get accepted, you'll wind up forfeiting something like 80 to 90% of your royalties to the publisher. Um, you're expected to come in with a marketing plan, like that's part of your book proposal, and then execute pretty much all of it yourself. So it's like you're doing all the work, you get very, very few benefits. Like, yes, you get to work with their editor and their designer, but those are things you can do independently, usually for cheaper and often better. Um, so there just are very, very few benefits. And like, so many hoops you have to jump through. They also take, you know, final creative control over it. So they might kind of make your book more mainstream or kind of dumb it down a bit. Um, there's just so few advantages and so many, so much bullshit you have to deal with, basically. Yeah. 
Well, and so the, the only advantages that I can think of are, you know, maybe getting the advance for the people that are cash flow constrained that want the money up front that, that they in the event you get selected, I guess you can take the advance and then maybe just the ego of saying that you're published by some famous publisher. But I can't really uh, there's not many advantages that come to mind of going that route anymore. Yeah, the the advance obviously like is nice. Um, the average Again, the average person listening to this is going to get a really, really tiny advance. So actually, the so the first book I published was Smart Sports Betting. So just kind of like a how-to guide on, on sports betting for casual sports fans. Um, so it did really well, self-published. And this was before I knew like anything about self-publishing. So I did this, I guess, in 2014, so like five, six years ago. Um, did really well. And then I got contacted by this like imprint of Simon & Schuster. Like, I think that was like two years ago. So they offered me a deal. And the advance I was offered was $6,000 and it was $6,000 to do like basically a rewritten version of my book, like slightly expanded. So it would have competed with my other book. I was only getting $6,000. They told me they were going to do it on a quote fast timeline, which was a year. So it's going to take me a year of work to, to make $6,000. And then I was going to make, uh, I think it was like 10% royalties on sales. So it was just like, it was absurd, completely yeah. absurd. Yeah. Well, and your book has already done more than that. Like, can you talk about, actually, this is a perfect segue. So let's talk about that book. Like wh what led you to create it and how is it done? Um, okay. So I, my first real job and only real job, it wasn't even really a real job, but it was a full-time job, um, was as a sports blogger and like editor for this site called Sports Grid. Um, so I basically had like a ton of freedom. It was the sports blog that reached like three to four million unique visitors a month, um, but it only had like four employees. So I basically just got to write about whatever I wanted as long as I was getting enough clicks. Um, and I just realized the sports betting niche was very like underserved because it's it was technically illegal. Now it's semi-legal in some places and just like very taboo. So I wound up writing about that a lot um, and just realized how little people knew. Um, and it's just like it's a very ripe environment for charlatans because like there's no regulation that people don't know what they're doing. So people get scammed all the time. So I was like exposing scammers and people were all of a sudden like treating me as this like semi expert, even though, you know, I wasn't getting rich betting on sports. Um, and eventually I just realized like I had enough to say, like, I just have to write a book. I had no expectations. I, I mean, I figured, you know, maybe a few hundred people will read it. I'll make a few hundred bucks, but it was really just like a thing I wanted to do. Um, got obsessed with self-publishing, did all the research, realized it's not that difficult and just kind of did it. Nice. And then what was the output of that? I know you, you've gotten quite a bit of royalties from it. How did that play out? Yeah. So again, like had absolutely no idea what to expect. I built like a, I think it was like 46 person email list through SportsGrid, like absolutely nothing. And just told those people about the book, asked for some feedback and stuff. Um, and then in like the first month I made I think it was, yeah, the first month I made, it was like about $1,100 in royalties. So that's not like sales. That is literally the amount that went in my account. And I was just like completely shocked. <laughs> like, this thing I had no expectations for. I wasn't even sure I could do it. Like all of a sudden it's making me a thousand bucks a month. And this was while I was living in Prague and my apartment cost like 400 bucks a month. So I'm like, that was right. over two months rent, like basically paid for all of my expenses, just completely unexpected. Nice. 
So you're throwing the Bekarovka back at that point and just like absolutely gonna be <laughs> what beyond beyond the royalties that you've gotten from that, what other like you said you've been contacted by Simon Simon Schuster, like what other value has writing that book created for you? Um so I didn't have like any real interest in taking like the the sports angle further. So I think there were a bunch of opportunities I got whatever, to go on a podcast, to write for this site or whatever, that I, I mostly turned those down or ignored them um, because I just got so obsessed with this self-publishing thing. And so the real benefits were, I mean, obviously having the story to tell people, um, the Simon & Schuster offer. And I guess beyond that, it was just like having this book to point to when I started like preaching about self-publishing. And the funny thing is like, I almost hate to say this, but like a lot of the benefits of writing a book will like people will come to you and just be impressed that you wrote a book and they won't even read it. So like, it could be garbage. I mean, I think it's good, but like people are just impressed by the fact that you can hold a paperback book in your hand and be like, Ooh, this is mine. Yeah. I mean, the, the book seems like the new business card in a way, like people kind of exactly. throw their book around like the same way you toss a business card to someone. Exactly. It's just like kind of a proof of expertise. So like if I wanted to be one of those, like, obnoxious sports betting charlatans like i'm sure i could show up at events and be like oh i wrote the best book ever and pay me lots of money i didn't want to do that but i think i could have if that was my personality <laughs> well i want to ask you how you deal with criticism because I, I i i got about halfway through your other book and i wanted to read some of these quotes because they're hilarious like some of <laughs> these are in all caps so i'm just gonna read this like Dude, you blow at this. Please just stop writing for the rest of your life. Really, don't ever write anything again. Your lack of ability legitimately makes me angry. Uh, Matt, you are a waste of human flesh. Sad life you live. Six exclamation points. Matt, Renit Matt Renitsky likes penis in his pooper. And my favorite one, Matt is a Jew form Ukraine. Spelled wrong. Dyslexic. So what... How do you deal with this type of hate and criticism and trolling uh, constantly? So, okay. So the first, the first <laughs> thing is I cherry picked those insults. So they're in my book, you are an author, so write your effing book um, to show you the absolute worst you could possibly get. But this is like, so that was only when I was writing for the sports blog. So this is when probably, you know, a few hundred thousand people are reading my articles like every month. And say, you know, 100,000 people are reading my articles about things that are semi-charged, right? Like this team sucks, this team's good, et cetera, that will upset people. Even given all of that, I would probably get a couple dozen like hate comments per month. So ever since I stopped writing about sports, and if you don't write about sports, politics, something like supercharged, you will get way, 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 way fewer like negative comments than you think. Um, that said, it's still scary until you're like out there publishing. Cause you're probably not going to believe me. You're like, Oh, but what, you know, I don't have proof that people are going to care about what I have to say about this, whatever, say you're writing about like sales or something you're like, ah, oh, but I haven't physically done this yet. Like there are these imaginary creatures in your head that disagree with everything you say, even though you're an incredibly smart guy who's going to have good things to say. Um, and they're really there's no way to get over it besides just like publishing constantly and realizing that it's really not a big deal. It will hurt you the first few times. And then you just realize that like the people that care about this don't matter. 
these are the like 0.0001% of people that are really vocal on the internet and just go around like clicking on things and being like, you suck, you suck, you're the worst. You're a Jew from Ukraine, which doesn't even make any sense. I am Jewish and my family's not from the Ukraine. I'm American. I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, it just seems like there's always going to be haters and there's always trolls. So yeah, I just, uh, I tend to agree with you on that advice there. Um, what about other challenges? And I just want to, I just want to add one, sorry, one more thing is that the only way you will get like hate comments is if you've written something good. Like most people are afraid of, of getting negative comments at the beginning. And it's like, the truth is you're more, you're way more likely to just be ignored and you're, article or book just gets lost in the sea of millions of articles and books than to get a negative comment. If you do, that's a sign that you're reaching some people. And for every one negative comment, there's probably 500 people who either enjoyed it or like, oh, that's pretty good. Well, it's funny. Uh, I know Edward Snowden just today released his book. Uh, what's it called? Whatever the book is, he just wrote uh, Permanent Record. And he's on the same day been sued by the Department of Justice for some kind of you know, contractual thing that he uh, breached in doing that. And he tweeted something to the effect of uh, a lawsuit because the book is so truthful is a wonderful stamp of authenticity or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So you're right. That's so, the thing. One of our, like one of our mutual favorite authors, Nassim Taleb always talks about that. Like book, I think it's like books are, his quote is books are anti-fragile. Like they gain, strength from attacks like if you're getting attacked that's a good sign and the people that are going to side with the attackers are not your readers anyway and there's going to be someone else reading that article and be like this person what is this person talking about like they are so wrong for going after this person i'm gonna buy his book yeah no literally i went to amazon as soon as i read that and i i bought that on kindle i bought this note exactly <laughs> it's funny what about the other challenges that you encounter things like writer's block um imposter syndrome like what how do you deal with those I think for, in terms of writer's block, um, there are like these, these two camps where like you have one side say writer's block isn't real because like, and, and there is some truth in it. Like I like what Seth Godin says about it. He's like, there's no such thing as talker's block. So why is there a such thing as writer's block? It's not, it's not that you can't write. Like if you were just to sit, sit in front of your word processor and be like, I'm going to write 500 crappy words on whatever is on my mind. You'll have no trouble and you'll probably write 50,000 words. Um, but it still is real. Like there is a reason that people stare at the blank page or want to write and don't start writing. Um, and I think the, there are two big things. One big thing would be thinking that you have to write something perfect on your first draft um, and not understanding the concept of like a shitty first draft and knowing that if you were to speak to anyone, myself obviously included, who has, who writes frequently, like our first drafts are really shitty. Like no, even if we're talking JK Rowling, Michael Lewis, like whoever, insert your favorite author here, like their first drafts are really, really bad. Like do not try to write your first draft perfectly. Try to write a shitty first draft and then turn that into something good. So that'll be the first thing. The other thing is like counterintuitively, the more, the more you write and the more you write down ideas, the more ideas you will have, which sounds really weird, but it's like when, when I was forced to write, it was usually like four or five things a day as a sports blogger, I never had trouble coming up with ideas and I never had trouble publishing. And then once I didn't have that job anymore, 
uh, like all of a sudden I had a writer's block just because I got out of the habit of doing it. It's really just a habit. And the more you publish, the more you realize that like, it's not about your one piece of writing or your one idea. It's just about the body of work and the habit of publishing and getting out there. Well, I would wholly uh, agree with both of those stances. The, the, the right drunk edit sober, which is essentially the first point you made. And the, uh, at least this maps over to music from my experience in terms of like, when you just keep putting stuff out there, no matter how bad it may feel, it creates like a vacuum that then invites other creativity. So I don't know if that's even just specific to writing. I think that's kind of relevant to art and music as well. Um, Definitely. Are there, so is there any like resource or, or, or specific course or exercise you recommend, or is it just literally people need to just go write? Like they need to just start writing. Um, I mean, I think the most important thing is to write consistently. Um, I mean, I think it could certainly help to have an editor to, I mean, you can work with me. I like have coached people on this in the past, um, but it's just literally whatever will get you to be writing things consistently. And before you do that, you have to like decide like, is this really something you want to pursue? Because it's difficult. Um, anyone can do it. Like, I believe that literally anyone is capable of doing it, but a lot of people I'm sure very similar to like music, like in the back of my mind, I like want to play guitar. I want to learn guitar, but I don't, I don't have any real reason to, I don't have any urgency. I don't have a goal with it. So there's, that's why I've never done it. Um, so if you want to write, like, why do you want to write? Um, do you, is this something you really want to do for your entire life? Or is this like, I want to get my ideas out about this one little thing like decide why it is um decide what's stopping you and either commit to it fully or don't there's no there's no shame in saying like this is really hard i don't want to do it so okay well so this is a good also segue so when you sit down with someone on a new consulting arrangement and what is your process where do you guys start like you start with a goal goal Um, first or what what how, how do you approach it and i want to take a second to briefly pause here and tell you about an exciting project that i'm working on I recently left my job of five years to go full-time on a side project that I started called Charity Makeover. This is a hackathon that brings volunteer knowledge workers together to build game-changing digital assets for local charities in a single day. Think of it like a habitat for humanity, only with virtual assets instead of physical houses. I recently deployed a platform that enables anyone to bring this movement to his or her city. If you think you might be interested in being the admin for your city, Visit charitymakeover.org slash podcast to learn more. And now back to the interview. Yeah, typically. So usually I'm working with people who want to write books, but um, it could just be someone that wants to start writing. And yeah, the first thing is, why do you want to do this? Because most people are not clear on why they want to do it. And there there are plenty of good reasons. And I like I outline them probably better than I will now in my book. So like, feel free to check that out. Um, but are you doing it to make money? If you're doing it to make money on your book, that's a horrible reason because you probably won't. Um, are you doing it to direct people to something else that will make you money? Consulting, an online course, etc. That's a much better reason. Um, are you doing it for your ego? That's not a honestly not a horrible reason if you're aware of it up front. Like this is just something I want to do to like people who want to run a marathon. I want to do it to say I was able to do it. Nothing wrong with that, but you want to be upfront about it. If you, if you say, I want to run a marathon to break a world record, uh, but the real reason you're doing it is just to finish, like you're going to be pretty disappointed when you, do, when you don't break a world record. Um, 
are you doing it to just become a better writer? Like nothing wrong with that either. Just being super clear about that upfront. Yeah. Okay. So you start with the objective in mind first and what is your process? Like when you sit down and work with someone though, like what do you guys focus on? Cause I know you're, you're concerned not just about the writing of it, but like distribution and things, you know, thinking down the road of how does this actually fit in the world? Yeah. And it all, it all ties in with like being super clear about your, your goals up front. Like once you know that, then you know the end goal and you can kind of connect the dots because it changes, it changes what you write about. It changes the type of book it is. It changes the marketing strategy. It changes, you know, is this going to be a hundred page book? There's nothing wrong with writing a hundred page book if it's something super specific and, or is this going to be, you know, a 500 page three year long process? Like those are two totally different things. Um, so basically the way I do it personally, if I'm coaching someone or consulting is I just, just like I would get them to do with writing is to get them to word vomit. Like what are all of your ideas? What are all the possible reasons you want to do this? Get that all out on paper, get rid of the ones that aren't that important, prioritize, um, and keep like trimming down and down and down until we get like the essence of why they want to do this. Um, and then what's the best way to accomplish that. And then do you put that into any, like a mind map or like Scrivener or any of the tools for organizing that stuff or what's your process from there? I've done it a million different ways. Like, I don't think the tools are that important. I definitely, I've never, I've played around with Scrivener. I've never like officially used it. I've used Trello to organize ideas. I've used mind maps. Like my last book, I did start out with a mind map. Sometimes they'll just like word vomit things into a word document. It really like doesn't matter. Just whatever works for me or that person. Um, but yeah, the key is just getting it all out and then prioritizing and cutting the Trimming the fat. Right. So don't fixate on the tool that can actually become like a, you know, an excuse for not moving forward basically is obsessing over what tool you're going to use. Yeah. And you know, once you start writing, I mean, you should, you should have an idea. Like if it's something super research heavy, you should have some sort of basic strategy, whether it's using Scrivener or Evernote or whatever, but there's no right answer. Cool. And if it's not research heavy, then I wouldn't worry about it at all, honestly. Can you talk about the most recent book that you helped with, which is the ticketless one? Because I, I watched that video the other day. I'll link to it in the show notes. But it's it's this guy basically sneaking into a stadium to put his book in the hands of a sports writer. Yeah, so that was that was my little like marketing stunt idea. I'm I'm not good at making videos, but I actually somehow cobbled that one together and Trevor forgot to uh so Trevor Krauss is the author great guy incredible writer forgot to put the video uh horizontal but you know what are you gonna do but, um, so it's a long story we worked on that for like three four years um so Trevor has snuck into I think it's like I wrote, I wrote it in the video I think it's like 37 different sporting events now something like that well over 30 um and like major ones we're talking Super Bowl Wimbledon final, um, the Masters, World Series, blah, 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 blah. have to um, have inevitably like incredible security. Those are all like really big events, I would imagine. Most of them do. If you read the, I don't want to spoil the book. Everyone should check out Ticket List. But um, yes, the Super Bowl was crazy. The Masters was crazy. He actually didn't get in in Buenos Aires, Argentina. That was the craziest security. Um, but the truth is a lot, a lot of the stories were just him kind of blending in him, like spending a lot of time, like traversing the stadium beforehand and like finding a little hole in the security setup. Um, and one of the big things is that like the metal detectors are before 
the ticket takers. So like they check, they know that you don't have, you know, anything dangerous before you, they even check your ticket. So like once you're not a threat, like they're less concerned about you getting right. it. Right. So he takes advantage of that. And he's done it in like 10 different ways. He's like, he snuck into a place in like a garbage bin. He was, he was sitting in a garbage bin. He just says, run past people, made a fake ticket. I mean, I'll let you read the book if you want all the, uh, well, the video, the, this, crazy the video that I'll link to, it's, it's him sneaking in. He, he films the whole thing. He like puts the phone on the thing, you know, goes through the metal detector. And then you see him just basically like take off through the turnstile. Um, it's pretty, pretty ballsy. Um, I want to shift gears and talk about travel because that's how we first met each other. So you were living in Prague prior to remote year. Um, and obviously when you wrote the sports betting book and you've traveled to a number of countries since then, how, how many have you been to at this point? Uh, it's like, it's like 50 ish. I think I'm like just over 50, but it depends. Like I went on some cruises with my parents when I was younger to these like islands that I don't even remember yeah. that technically might count as countries. So more or less 50 was. Cool. And like, what, what does travel mean to you? Why, why do you keep traveling? Um, I think it's meant different things at different points in my life. Um, so like I grew up, you know, a, a sheltered white boy from <laughs> the suburbs of New York where there's just, it, there's just nothing, no diversity of, and I'm not even just talking like race, but just no diversity of lifestyle or career or thoughts like everyone does the same thing everything's so like perfect and it just like felt like trapped in that um and i had traveled like a little bit with my parents but never internationally so it was just like the moment i had an opportunity to like get out of that bubble i just like sprinted towards it and it was like wanted to soak in everything now that i've seen a lot of things um i think it's more about like just having experiences with people like building relationships like the reason I did remote year and the reason you know we connected and became friends like it's more about that just like having these novel experiences with people than like me being super adventurous and seeing new things yeah yeah cool well Austin is one of the places that if I were going to settle in the U.S. I'd say between that and San Diego uh, would be the two places that I would consider love Austin yeah it's it's awesome you may have uh, a wandering Portuguese nomad on your couch for South by Southwest next week. You next year. are welcome to come if we are still here. <laughs> right on. Can you tell the story? Uh, this is one of the things you submitted in the pre-interview questions. Uh, the time I found my airline no longer existed as I was about to go to China. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> Forgot about that one. So, okay. So that was... So I lived in Prague for a year. I came back um, and I lived in Boston for know, like 10 months or something like that. And then again, got the travel itch. So I'd never been to Asia, really wanted to go to Asia, found this flight deal that I was super proud of. I think it was like, I want to say it was, I think it was $180 from Boston to Beijing one way. So like probably the best deal I've ever gotten. And I was like bragging to everyone, like, oh, I know how to find flight deals. It's amazing. <laughs> And then, and I had a bunch of plans in Asia. I was visiting my next door neighbor growing up, oddly enough, moved to Beijing. So I was visiting him there. Um, I was going to go to like Thailand and Vietnam and all that stuff. So I had a bunch of plans, really excited, show up with just a backpack, get to the airport in Boston. And like on the, so on the subway or the metro or whatever they call it, the T, uh, it said like, 
this airline trans arrow, which was like some sketchy Russian airline I'd never heard of is in, you know, terminal two or whatever. And then I looked it up on my phone and so it was in like terminal three. So this is like red flag. Number one, this is odd. Like, I don't know why my ticket doesn't tell me where to go. And there's some discrepancies here, but whatever, it's probably no big deal to go to terminal two. Don't see anything with trans arrow on it. It's like, all right, it's probably just terminal three. There's some confusion. Go to terminal three. I don't see, I see one little like booth, um, that like had like a faded out like trans arrow sign and there's no one there. So it's like, this is weird. I'm looking on the flight board and I don't like see it. And I see like another flight to Beijing, but the time was a little different. And I'm like, it didn't say trans arrow. I'm like, is that my flight? I'm just very confused. And I'm trying to ask like employees and they're like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, there's no desk to go to. I'm just like completely confused. Like I just have absolutely no idea what to do. Cause like I, I couldn't find my ticket on my phone. Like I just couldn't find anything. So eventually I went to the Aeroflot desk cause that's another Russian airline. And in my head, it's just like, well, these are the same things. Maybe they merged or something. I don't know. Like what could possibly be going wrong here? Uh, so I basically just go up to the Aeroflot desk as if I'm flying their airline, hand them my passport. And they're like, what are you, why are you here? <laughs> You're not in our system at all. <laughs> I was like, uh, well, I was flying this other Russian airline and I kind of just figured you guys had like merged or something. And they're like, no, that airline went bankrupt like two months ago. <laughs> so I guess what had happened is I bought this ticket, the airline went bankrupt and they never contacted me to tell me that there would be no flight. But oddly enough, this other Russian airline did have a flight to Beijing that was like a similar time. It was like, I don't know, 10 minutes after or something, which is why I was confused. I thought maybe that was my flight, but it was just a different one. Um, and I basically just wound up having to buy a flight and I was freaking out because I thought it was going to be like $5,000 or something. And it turned out it wasn't that bad. I think it was like maybe like 400 bucks. It wasn't like insane. So, you know, my $180 flight deal didn't really come through. I don't even think I got my money back, um, but I got to Beijing and it was okay. <laughs> and how was Beijing? Uh, it was amazing, uh, but only because my friend lived there and spoke fluent Mandarin. Otherwise, I would have been so lost, so confused. What about uh, another shift of gears here? So we've talked about writing on the reading side of things. Like, do you, are you a believer in speed reading or what are your thoughts on, on whether that's worth like a skill worth acquiring? Um, I've never invested any time in learning it. It's just, it's like, honestly just doesn't like appeal to me that much, especially. And part of that is because like when I read, I'm trying to absorb the writing and like become a better writer. I definitely understand why, like if you're reading, nonfiction with a specific intent to learn something like I definitely think it could be valuable. Um, I've just, I've never invested any time in it. I try to enjoy the reading experience and like really soak in the writing and the energy and how it's changing and the, the flow of the sentences and whatever. But yeah, so it's never been a thing for me personally, but I get why, why some people do it. Cool. Uh, on that topic, who do you like? I mean, Nassim Taleb, you mentioned, we both have a mutual respect for him. Uh, who else? Who are the um, so, so, so many people. Um, I mean, I could literally give like hundreds of book recommendations in terms of just like pure writing style. Um, my favorites would probably be Kurt Vonnegut is like way top. Um, for nonfiction, I love Nassim Taleb. Um, Michael Lewis is like an incredible storyteller. Um, got like Charles Bukowski is 
crazy and hilarious um, and kind of obnoxious, but writes amazing novels or wrote amazing novels. Rest in peace. Um, what about who is the Andre Agassi? The uh, yes, so one of my favorite books. It's a quote autobiography, but then you get to the end of the book, and Andre Agassi is like, oh, "I really want to thank my co-writer who did a lot of the work." Um, this guy J.R. Moringer. It's like M O E H R I N G E R, I believe, um, who has also written his own autobiography. It's called The Tender Bar, um, which is just like the autobiography of an ordinary dude who grew up going to a bar with, or basically was raised in a bar, like with his, I guess, dad's friends. Um, and just like this ordinary story is so superbly written that like blew my mind. Have you read uh, Shantaram? So you recommended that to me like many, many times. And every time I see you, I bump it up my Kindle list. And I had not started it until I believe like three days ago, I actually started it and I'm about 60 pages through and loving it so far. I will, I will get through it. <laughs> so I actually did start it. And it's great. Dope. Dope. Well, we'll need a, a comment maybe on the podcast when you finish it and we'll, we'll get, hear your thoughts on that one. Cause that was one of my favorites. Yeah, in like three years when I finish the nine hundred pages. <laughs> yeah, no, I will. Yeah, I will. I will finish it soon. I bet you within a month it'll be it'll be done. Dope. Uh, let's talk about your morning routine because I know you're a believer in morning routines. Can you just tell a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, um, I've like experimented with you know every article and podcast that has talked about um, a morning routine, and I think there are a million different useful ones depending on what you like. Um, Currently, now, really all I do is I get up like as early as possible. I've actually been trying to get up with the sunrise lately, which has worked sometimes. Um, start with like, I use this app. It's called State. It's like a breathing exercise app. Do that for like, it's like seven minute exercise, kind of like wake your brain up. Um, and then some sort of meditation, which I've been doing Headspace recently, but I've tried a ton of other things like brain.fm there's insight timer there's different strategies and whatever so those are really the only two things like I'm doing right now then get my get my coffee and try to write something as as soon as possible or read then write something as soon as possible and that's like my like minimalist morning routine i feel accomplished i feel focused and you write very first thing like once you finish the routine then you go right into writing or what what's like how do you transition I go right into Almost always go to a coffee shop, get coffee, read for usually 15 to 30 minutes, and then start writing. Like to like prime my brain with good, good writing and then write. Right on. Uh, so I just have actually one last question. Who is Jim? Oh, who is Jim? Well, <laughs> rest in peace, Jim. Okay, so I don't know what I'm at liberty to discuss about Jim, but basically the short version of the story is that my friends and I on remote year made a satirical newsletter because um, we got like a normal newsletter, like here's what's going on this week, this month, et cetera. And we just thought it'd be funny to make a satirical one, but we had just met everyone. Um, so I wanted to do fuck, Mary kill. And I was like, oh, I just met these people. I can't kill anyone, <laughs> like even figuratively. Like that's just going to upset people. It's not worth it. And we did it anonymously. So they'd be like, who wants to kill me? This is weird. Um, so they're were two people that hadn't been there the first month. This was the second month. So I was like, okay, you know, fuck one, marry one. That's a positive thing. Okay, now I'm just going to make someone up 
uh, to kill because they can't kill a real person. So I just wrote kill Jim. Um, but I think some people thought there was a Jim and they just hadn't met him yet. Um, so he just kind of turned into this meme, even though he wasn't ever a real person. But maybe he is. <laughs> I mean, this spoof newsletter, if I can find it, I'll include it because it was hilarious. And I know you guys had to end up like apologizing for it. But like, I think the vast majority of people just thought it was hilarious and that you should just keep doing it. Which is another good goes. We circled back to my earlier point on like the there's going to be one or two vocal people that have a problem with something if you push a boundary. But like most people. don't. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to go into the very last phase of this interview. This is what I call the breakdown. So are you ready for the breakdown? I am ready for the breakdown. Breakdown, baby. All right. Let's break it down. All right. And I got to do this. And I know you're going to hate this, but what is one book that has profoundly affected you or sculpted your thinking in some way? There's so many. I'm just going to say Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb because that, yeah, probably top five. Cool. Uh, what about one person you would love to take to dinner? Okay, I'm not going to say anything because I just keep saying him. Uh, who else will I say? Jim. Uh, Jim. <laughs> I'd, I'll say Nassim. It's, I really like Nassim Taleb's work. I'm going to say Cool. Him. Everyone, if you haven't checked out stuff, check out stuff. What about what is one tool or hack that saves you time, money, and headaches? Evernote. Cool. Use it myself. I'm, that's literally what I'm staring at right now as I read these notes in talking to you. So, yeah, I 100% <laughs> agree there. Uh, one piece of music or musical author that speaks to you. So lately I've been listening to Labyrinth a lot. L-A-B-R-I-N-T-H, like a British dude with an incredible soul. Okay. Voice. Not the David Bowie uh, film of many years ago. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. We'll look at that one. Here is a, uh, a difficult question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Um, that writing is the writing publicly is the most valuable thing you can do for your life and career. Do you, here's a, here's a question that you just made me think of. Do you believe that thought can exist independent of writing? Like words are decoupled from thought. Writing or, or like speech just like, uh, well, no, clearly we can think and not write. So I guess it's more like is language intricately coupled with thought? with thought. Um, I think that it's a circular thing. Um, like thought shapes language, language shapes thought. Um, yes, I do think, I think you, you know, you can think in pictures, think in symbols. Um, so yeah, I think it could exist, but they have a, you know, intermingled relationship. Uh, okay. Last question. What about if you had a time machine to go back to your 20 year old self, what is one piece of advice you would give your former self? Um, never stop publishing, publish way more, publish more. You've already published a couple books. So you're just saying up the volume. More shorter, yeah. More shorter things. Like I've gone through little lapses of not publishing things regularly. Um, and I think if you're committed to this as a lifelong skill and thing in your career, like you need to do it more. And when I say you, I'm talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Cool, man. Well, so where can I send people? How do you want people to connect with you on social media or is there a site you want them to go to? Yeah. Um, so if you just want to read my writing, go to rudbits.com, R-U-D-B-I-T-S.com. If you're interested in working with me on book stuff, go to platypusbooks.com. Um, and then if you want to check out my book on writing and writing books and whatnot, um, 
I give a free copy to anyone that goes to platypusbooks.com slash nomad. It should work. We'll have to double check that it works, but it should work. All right. All right. Free book. Um, Matt, man, as always, it's a pleasure catching up. Thank you for being a guest on the show and best of luck in all the writing endeavors and whatever else you're working on these days. All right. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. And thanks everyone for listening. Cheers. If you have a substantial social media following and consider yourself a micro influencer in the digital nomad space, I invite you to check out a program I'm in the early stages of rolling out. I call it the advocate program for nomad podcast and nomad prep. It's a multi-level affiliate program that enables you to monetize the social media following you've built by referring my course to your followers. You can earn commission on both students you originate directly as well as students who come in via the advocates you originate, essentially a downline, and all through simply introducing your following of aspiring nomads to a course that can help them more confidently make the leap. I'm in the process of selecting a small group of early advocates who I'll be working with closely to refine this program and make it effective. In exchange for early participation, those influencers will be grandfathered in at the highest level of commission that will ever be offered in this program. To learn more about the program and the referral numbers necessary to generate a four-figure monthly side income, visit nomadprep.com advocates and apply today. That URL again is nomadprep.com advocates. Help aspiring nomads make the leap and get paid for doing so. You've been listening to the Nomad Podcast. For links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, transcripts, show notes, photos, and more, visit nomadpodcast.com. Nomad Podcast is supported in part by Nomad Prep, an online academy to help aspiring digital nomads make a successful transition. Take the first four days free by visiting nomadprep.com forward slash podcast.